Superbikes hit the United States, we asked the question, who stops JR? Emphatic answer, nobody. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! This is episode 66 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on the United States round of the World Superbike Championship as they hit Laguna Seca last week. And, uh, well, yeah, the uh, the corkscrew was the uh, corner that we're all looking at. And uh, the uh, relations of Kawasaki have got even sharper downhill than that corner does. Um, we'll be talking about that a lot over the course of this uh, week's podcast. The war of words intensifies between Jonathan Ray and Tom Sykes. And their two race weekends at Laguna Seca went in very, very different directions following that. Um, we'll talk about what the future holds for both of those riders in the World Superbike Championship. They're, again, probably going to be going in very different directions. Uh, and look back at all the other big stories from the Laguna Seca weekend. There's Chaz Davies returned to form with a couple of second places. Eugene Laverty and Aprilia returned to the podium for the first time in ages. Uh, whilst Alex Lowe's continues to have the upper hand on Michael van der Mark ever since his win at Bruno. So many other stories to come out of that weekend, even though the racing wasn't particularly stellar. Uh, with career best results for one of the Americans in the field, a terrifying crash that ruled out Toprak Razgatioglu, and there is plenty of news away from the World Superbike panic as the Suzuka 8-hour field takes shape. Um, and we'll also discuss what the future holds for the greatest rider in British Superbike history, Shane Byrne. Uh, who of course made his return to television punditry last week, but his future in racing remains uncertain. We'll also look ahead to what's coming up this weekend. It is another of the golden events in the MotoGP calendar. It is the TT Assen in the Netherlands. Um, joining me to cover all of that once again is Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Hi, everybody. Good to see you again. And uh, oh boy, uh, this like we were fearing this is this was going to be a short one this week, and uh, it turns out that thanks to British Eurosport, we've now got a very meaty main event topic to get into this week, which is uh, uh, cheers, Greg. Much appreciated. Uh, we owe you another beer for that one. Um, I think the list is about 17 now, the, the, the tab's getting quite extensive, <laughs> but um, yeah, pleasure to be here. And uh, wow, uh, god, where do we even start on this next one? Because uh, it's, it's, it's nice to see World Superbikes being, being talked about more, but not for the reasons you'd expect. Yeah, Again. Um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's just as well it happened, really, because the racing that we got at the Guna Second, for the second year in a row, really, wasn't particularly outstanding. Um, it's no. almost like you can't overtake around there or something. Um, mm. But um, but yeah, we'll cover that in a moment. First of all, though, um, the places you can find us, if you don't know these already, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. Suggestions, by the way, um, uh, Dre's put out a bit of a call to arms already today on Twitter as we record this on Friday, yeah. June the 29th. Any suggestions for what you want to see or hear from episode 150 of Motorsport 101, which is two slash three weeks away, depending on how the shows pan out uh, over the next yeah. fortnight. At Motorsport underscore 101 on Twitter for your suggestions uh, on that one. Uh, on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101 is the place to find us. Our website is motorsport101.com. Uh, with plenty of written content over there. Um, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and yourself early access to both of our weekly shows, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 is the place to go. Uh, if you back us at the $5 level, you earn yourself early access to both of our weekly shows. If you back us at the $10 level, you earn access to our Discord server um, where you can listen into our shows as they are recorded and see some behind-the-scenes stories that really take some uh, getting your head around. Um, mm -hmm. Just take our word on that. Um, patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 in fact if you back us at all on patreon this week you get episode 147 
um, of Motorsport 101 uh, on early access, entitled Break Royale, um, as the uh, French Grand Prix returned to Formula 1. Uh, Dre, a race that wasn't as necessarily as bad as we were fearing, but I suppose from your point of view, uh, went a little bit worse than you hoped, certainly from the uh, very first corner <laughs> onwards. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still mad at Mercedes for the pincer movement. Um, I, I, was, I, I wasn't best pleased with the uh, British Transport Police's idea of a rolling roadblock into Turn 1, but here we are. Yeah, Episode 147 of Motorsport 101 Break Royale came out this... Um, well, it'll be out by the time this goes out um, on Saturday, June 30th. But uh, yeah, on it, uh, a, a doubleheader. We talk about Formula 1 at uh, Paul Ricard. It's the first French Grand Prix in 10 years. Great to see F1 back home where it belongs in France. And yeah, to be fair, it wasn't a bad race at all. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be, um, which I think was kind of the overwhelming journey. I think the, the, the general shit show was everything else regarding Paul Ricard, including the, the transport logistics and and ludicrously expensive hotels. I didn't, I didn't get enough to mention this during the actual show itself, but uh, apparently the hotel by the track was $2,400 a night. With an eighty-dollar club sandwich, and which is why Sebastian apparently was saying that a hotel like a few miles down the road because he thought I'm like, this is a guy, this is a man that's making forty million bucks a year as an F1 driver. So you know, what? I'm not paying eighty bucks for a sandwich. Um, yeah, that makes so yeah, thought, camping seemed cheap. I know, right? Uh, so I thought that was quite funny. Um, I didn't get to mention that on the show itself. So you're getting some bottle of exclusives here, which I thought was quite funny. But um, yeah, so that that was a thing. Uh, again, a, a dominant weekend from Lewis Hamilton. Another case where two hometown heroes don't even make it past the opening lap. And generally speaking, just a better race than usual, which is always a fun time for all involved. Um, we also talk about IndyCar's Grand Prix at Road America. Um, their, their first race back. And Joseph Newgarden winning his third race of the season and, you know, via just a flawless defensive drive up the front, um, holding off Ryan Hunter Ray for 53 of said 55 laps, um, which all the, all, the la- all the laps Joseph led in that race. We had Scott Dixon coming back into play doing Scott Dixon type things via fuel saving. And Alex Rossi doing his best to piss off the entire IndyCar pad via two, shall we say, slightly over-defensive maneuvers um, on that one, on, on Robert Wickens and Takuma Sato, which drew a lot of attention. Um, if Robert Wickens, one of the nicest dudes in IndyCar, is coming out and saying karma's a bitch in response to his later suspension failure, um, I think it's fair to say he was quite upset. Um, so all of that, IndyCar at Road America and Formula 1 at Paul Ricard, episode 147 of Motorsport 101, out now. And we'll talk about episode 148 um, at the end of this show. Um, right then, let's get into what happened in the Laguna Seca World Superbike Round. I'm going to do this chronologically, which means talking about the uh, the preamble to the actual racing itself, because in many ways that kind of overshadowed the racing that we got um, mm. at Laguna Seca, because it's very rare, and I tweeted this on, uh, on Saturday night, it's very rare that the pre-race coverage is more entertaining than the actual race. It certainly mm-hmm. was on this occasion, on Saturday night, because Eurosport broadcast um, interviews with the two factory KRT Kawasaki riders, um, Jonathan Ray and Tom Sykes. Um, now, Greg Haynes and Charlie Hiscott are kind of teed this up earlier in the evening before the interviews went on air, saying that we have very frank interviews with both riders. You're not going to want to miss this. And we were kind of like, okay. But I still mm-hmm. don't think we quite expected what we heard. I mean, first of all, Dre, before we actually go into what they said, um, I suppose from our point of view, as podcasters and um, motorsport aficionados looking for stuff to talk about, it's great for us. And... Um, are you, were you surprised, first of all, that both Jonathan Ray and Tom Sykes were so outspoken? 
Tom, no. Jonathan, yes. Um, that's what I'll say. Like, I, I didn't think Jonathan was that sort of guy where he's more, a bit more aggressive. And to be fair, in said interviews, Jonathan, I think, was a fair bit more diplomatic about the whole situation compared to Tom. Because let's be honest, we've like, and you know, rightly so. When, when Tom Sykes fell out with Loris Bass, we saw what Sykes was capable of on social media. He had no problem tearing his his, his former teammate a new one on that. So I always on TV, didn't he? Yeah, he said it on TV and he doubled down on Twitter. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, Sykes has always been capable of that sort of that sort of personality. He's, he's something like, when he's fired up, he has no problem speaking his mind, probably more than anyone in World Superbike stuff. So I wasn't entirely surprised that Sykes was so aggressive. Um, Jonathan, again, more than he usually is, but again, certainly a bit more diplomatic about the situation given what had transpired in said interviews. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean. Tom Sykes said in his uh, separate interview, they both did sit down essentially with Greg, uh, with uh, Charlie Hiscott um, of Eurosport, and, and Sykes claimed. I mean, I haven't. I've read these comments myself. I don't know which comments these are that Sykes read to, but he claims that Jonathan Ray, speaking to a group of journalists after the Bruno clash, was trying to belittle his achievements as a rider um, and just basically mm. belittle him entirely. Now, again, I'm not saying that that hasn't happened, but I haven't seen those comments. So whether that was in an off-the-record conversation or not, I don't know. Um, but clearly something sparked this response um, from Sykes where he essentially, like the first thing he said to Eurosport was, you know, this is a bit of an opportunity for me to put Jonathan in his place a bit. Uh, <laughs> which I thought, okay, this is going to be fun. Um, right. So he was clearly responding um, to something that he'd either heard or read um, from Jonathan Ray's part um, at the previous round. Um the, the first thing that was immediately clear, Dre, and I guess this shouldn't be a great surprise given that they're two world champions to you know, big egos, as you would expect from two riders at the top of their sport, is that neither rider was in any position or in any mood two weeks on to back down at all from their stance that no. the other was to blame for Bruno. No, and that was the least surprising thing about it. I mean, that, that that's the thing. When, when we ourselves as neutrals look back at that and, you know, said it was roughly 60-40, I mean, they, they, neither was going to back down. I mean, again, like Tom was a bit more aggressive describing it. He said that, that Jonathan was coming back from the grandstand to come on the track, which, strictly speaking, just wasn't true. Looking at the footage and what we were able to see of it, um, again, as mentioned, there, there was no um, clear-cut shot of what exactly had happened. We were, we were piecing it together from onboards and, and wide shots, basically. But um, like Sykes mentioned that Ray was coming back from the grandstand and he was going 10 kilometers an hour faster through the apex than he was in a Super Bowl lap. Um, to which my response would be, well, this is Jonathan Ray. He's always done these sorts of moves in Ray 2 situations and 99 times out of 100, they come off. Um, so what can you really say? It's like one of those things where I'm more inclined to give Jonathan the benefit of the doubt on that one. Because he's not, yeah, he's an aggressive rider, but it's, but he never really crosses a line, if that makes any sense. Um, it's, it's like, yeah, he'll block past guys every once in a while, but it's never in a way where you say that guy's dirty. Um, but and in I'm the not same sure way, Sykes that... was accusing Ray of being dirty, but he was accusing no. him of just being ambitious. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was, maybe that was the angle Tom was going with on that one, and yeah, it kind of was an aggressive pass, but. You know, he was able to stay on track. He ran a bit wide. That was going to be expected given the line that Johnny took. And yeah, it just happened to be that Sykes had parked his bike in an area that didn't give Jonathan an awful lot of room to play with. And of course, they're not going to back down on track. Why would they back down off track? Um, it, it's like I'm not entirely surprised by that at all. Um, 
Sykes Sykes isn't going to take responsibility for that given that he was still upright on his bike and was able to keep going um jonathan on the other hand of course he's going to be more pissed off because he was the victim in all this he was the victim in this situation um so again i'm not surprised that neither of them refused to back down that's just how they're going to be go again as you say guys with egos guys who at their best are you know title contenders former former and current world champions then they're, they're not going to back down on situations where they think they're in the right. And there is a case you could make that both of them were in the right in that situation. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised in the slightest that they were, they, they both, you know, basically drew, drew a line in the sand as to what, how, what they felt that incident was. I mean, this kind of falling out has been the kind of falling out that many of us thought might happen when they became teammates in 2015 when Ray joined Sykes. We always yeah. sort of talked it up as, oh, this is a bit of a combustible partnership between two you know obviously ray wasn't the world champion at the time but two of britain's top motorcycle riders and there's always been a sort of an undercurrent of sort of tension between the two it's clear they've not necessarily been the best of friends but the tension has been kind of calmed a little bit by the fact that one of them has been so clearly better than the other oh yeah through the last two and a half years um but it really has exploded now jonathan ray said in his interview and it's been uh, quoted in mtn as well I don't come to work to be friends with these guys. I couldn't care less what anyone thinks of me. Forget Bruno. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I went out here to ride for myself. Um, Sykes's side of the argument was, I'm very disappointed with the comments of such a talented rider, saying he can't understand what is going on in my brain. He tried to degrade me as a rider. It shows the level of his mentality, and he should be very embarrassed. Um, what, what followed, though, for me, was even more sort of shocking and really sort of maybe sort of take a step back when I listen to it because Tom Sykes went after Jonathan Ray's crew chief, Perariba, um, where he said, I put the bad feeling down to one man, Perariba, which is, as I say, Jonathan Ray's crew chief at Kawasaki. The way he goes about his business is terrible. Unfortunately, he cannot be tamed inside this environment. It's a big shame and there is no need for it at all. At the end of the day, it's a team. Um, and... The, the very fact that Whew. the very fact that Tom Sykes is going after, essentially not his teammate as a rider, but a member of the Kawasaki team, a Kawasaki employee, um, in such a public uh, way. I mean, whether we think he's right or wrong, whether we think it's right that he said those kind of things, it kind of tells us, Dre, that any kind of relationship between Tom Sykes and Kawasaki has broken down, and that relationship is going to end completely at the end of this year. Yeah, like that. Those were not the comments of a man that was sticking around. Let's put it that way. Because if and anything, if Sykes is going to be staying at Kawasaki, it's Sykes that needs to be begging Kawasaki to keep him more than anything else. Right, exactly. If we're going, if we're going purely by performances here, Tom Sykes is expendable and has been for quite some time. Like that's that's just the reality of it. I, I don't mean to be harsh on Tom Sykes. I don't, I'm not trying to roast him here, but results speak for themselves. Jonathan has speared that team ever since he walked in through the door. Not so much... And the, the problem is is that Sykes has deteriorated as a rider since they joined. Like, like, like there's, there's no doubt Sykes was a lot closer to Jonathan at the start of their time together compared to now, where hmm. back then Sykes was still winning multiple races a year, and he was, and if he wasn't winning, he would be on the podium. Sykes is now slipping to the point where he's now barely cracking the top six. Yeah, he's and only won once this season, and that was from a race two pole. Yeah, and that was the race that yeah he really should have won. Quite frankly, given that everyone else was beating each other up, while Sykes had a clear run with a race two pole where all his other major contenders were on row three. So yeah, like Sykes should have won that race. So yeah, like again, like Sykes on a bad day is now dropping outside of the top six, 
in the championship where he's now fourth behind Chaz Davis, which again isn't all that surprising because Chaz is still one of the premium dudes in the field. But Michael Vandermark is now ahead of him as well in the championship. And Vandermark is genuinely having a breakout season right now for Yamaha. And that's like that is all the justification Kawasaki need to remove him and to think about maybe a better second rider um to jonathan we, they know jonathan will carry that team we, we know it like we, he's probably the greatest superbike rider we've ever seen he doesn't need an, an, an elite elite second rider but if like, but sykes being in seventh and eighth opens the door for other manufacturers to still contend for other champs like the manufacturer's title like jacati's been in contention with for the last couple of the years and that still means a lot to, to the guys in green anyway so if sykes is compromising that goal then they've they've got to move on from him. So, but as mentioned, Sykes's comments, those were not the comments of a man that was sticking around. That is the comments of a man that's just set the bridge on fire. Yeah, and please keep me comments, were they? Yeah, they they he doesn't care anymore. It's obvious. He, he, like you wouldn't like in almost any line of work you do, you you don't publicly throw another member of staff under the bus like that. That would not work in any office or working environment. There would be consequences for that sort of behaviour. And to pick up um, on another point that you made uh, pre-show that I was brought upon Greg Haynes' Full Throttle podcast that, that he does with Eurosport, um, mm. this weekend saw Tom Sykes celebrate his 250th uh, World Superbike start on the Sunday in race two. Um, right. he, he didn't really mark it you, you'll notice later on we don't really talk about Tom Sykes' racing because he was 7th and 8th in the two races and that was about it um, right. but there was no great celebration um, from Kawasaki there was no celebratory pit ball to mark it like there was when he broke the Super Bowl record there was no um, there was no press release about it there was nothing really to, to mark the occasion and it's an occasion that's worth marking because it's only the 4th time in history a rider has achieved that level of longevity in the World Superbike Championship um, yeah. Only three riders have started more superbike races in the World Championship than Tom Sykes has now. Um, and no one has started more for Kawasaki. Um, he's their longest-serving rider. Um, mm-hmm. But it was noticeable how little was made of that by Kawasaki, which um, would suggest that the relationship has broken down in both directions. Um, and, yeah. what really, and what really stunned us all when we heard this again on, on Greg's podcast was that the two interviews that we're discussing, Dre, the first that the Kawasaki racing team found out about this was when they saw them on TV. Right. Like, the, the, you know, again, big thanks to Greg for passing that knowledge along. But, uh, yeah, like, straight up, apparently members of the Kawasaki pit crew were asking Greg and others on Eurosport, where can we see this footage? They had no idea this had happened. Like, they, they cornered them both off. They had no idea... That, that Tom had said these scathing comments to the media. And, you know, it's being aired in British, you know, British Eurosport, which is arguably the biggest market. Tom Sykes is throwing a team. It was yeah. posted in full on Twitter, so anybody around the world could essentially have viewed that. That that went yeah. all over Europe, because Eurosport's coverage is, is transmitted, of course, all across the continent. So that, that, that footage, that interview, and those comments within it went public and spread like wildfire pretty quickly. Um, yep. To the point that Kawasaki just could not control this 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 fire that was breaking out within their own team, uh, and it, mm-hmm. it kind of hits again on the point of is Tom Sykes expendable? Um, well, he is unfortunately for for another reason because he's he's no longer necessarily performing the role that ideally a number two would at Kawasaki in that he's not necessarily when Jonathan Ray's winning races by 
the margin he was winning race one by, he won it by you know nearly three seconds. He won race two by five seconds. You would like mm-hmm. to think that as good as Jonathan Ray is, your number two rider would be good enough to slot himself into that gap um, and, give your, and give your team a one-two. So uh, ultimately, Dre, if, if Tom Sykes isn't even doing that, then you might as well, if Tom Sykes is going to be running around in seventh and eighth, you might as well get another rider of seventh and eighth position level in who's not going to rock the boat so much. Right, like, that that's the problem. Like, for any neutral coming in here, if they had told you Tom Sykes' recent results and the comments he's just made, you'd say he'd be a poison in the locker room and you've got to get rid of him. Yeah. Like, any neutral would look at that situation and go, you know what, that's untenable. Because if, if, especially even if, if you think that both riders are equally at fault here for what they've said in the press... It's like it's like what I've always said about Cristiano Ronaldo, who's a bit of a prima donna. I say a bit of one. Uh, yeah. Madrid with Portugal, but you could tolerate that because he's one of the best players in the world and one of the best of all time. Like Jonathan Ray, if Jonathan Ray's being a bit of a prima donna and a bit of a you know you know saying things he shouldn't in the press, well you could tolerate that because he's the best rider on the planet on the superbike. But Tom Sykes yeah. isn't. So Tom Sykes is therefore the one that you've got to get rid of. Yeah. Like, a business guy would be saying the exact same thing. It's it's as simple as that. Like, as you mentioned, yeah, you even if you hold Jonathan Ray at least partially account for this situation, the guy wins. He wins yeah. championships. He yeah. wins races every almost every weekend. So extent, he is the man to beat. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's like to, to a degree, it's gotten to a point where it's like, how can you argue with, how can you argue with a guy that's that's the best superbike rider on the planet and no one's been able to touch him for the last four years? Like, like there's just, like, there's no argument there. Like, it's, it's, it's just how it's going to have to be. But yeah, as you say, that automatically makes Sykes expendable. And like I said, it, it, it's bad enough that his results have declined in the last year or so. But off of that, he's now running his mouth a little bit too much and he probably shouldn't be. I mean, yeah, if Sykes doesn't care, then then fair enough. Of course, he's not going to care. He's, he's going to be looking to move on and, and whatnot from that situation. But any smart business guy, any guy that any HR person would look at the situation and go, you know what, Sykes has got to go because this situation is toxic. He, the guy is, is, is throwing shade at members of the team. Um, you know, he, and his performances are not up to scratch and not up to the level of Kawasaki and where they are in the field. Um, given that, you know, Jonathan is outpointing Sykes nearly two to one at this point. It's 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 not good enough from Sykes. And yeah, you'd be begrudging the Kazaki to move on from this because, yeah, they can get someone probably of his level of quality right now and not have all this drama from underneath him. So, yeah, I mean, Sykes at the moment is 124 points behind his teammate as we head into the summer break very soon. And, um, yeah, no matter which way you slice it, that's just not going to cut it for Kawasaki. No, and in terms of who they're likely replacing with, because it it is essentially certain now that Sykes is out of that team for next year, so the question now moves on to who uh, to Kawasaki replace him with. Um, We'll talk about Sykes' future in a second. It looks, the the growing rumour now in World Superbike Street is that it's going to be potentially Leon Haslam. Um, the current <clears throat> lead factory Kawasaki BSB rider and of course former teammate of Jonathan Ray's at Honda um, before um, Haslam left to BSB um, back in sort of 2013-14 time they were teammates at Honda um, and a, a favoured rider clearly a rider who's got a lot of goodwill within Kawasaki based on his performances for them at the 8 hour um, mm-hmm. and of course his performances for them in BSB even though he didn't win the title last year he was uh, a fine rider and was, you know, arguably robbed of that title with that brake failure. Yeah. Um, he's not a rider. He kind of fits that role, doesn't he? Because I was, 
without trying to sound disrespectful to Haslam, he's not Jonathan Ray. Um, he's no. probably not going to, you know, he'll probably chip in with a few wins here and there and regular podiums. But he's not, he's probably going to be a solid backup man to Jonathan Ray if he joins the team. Um, and he's going to be a rider that, you know, just about everybody likes Leon Haslam. He's not going to fall out with anyone. So in many respects, he's the perfect teammate, isn't he, for Kawasaki? You'd think, yeah, Leon Haslam is a quality rider. We probably should have won the BSB title last year. He probably will win it this year, the way he's riding in the in the class at the moment, especially with Shaky still on the shelf um, while he recovers from his neck injury. Um, as mentioned, he's got a lot of goodwill in that camp. He's done a brilliant job for the SpeedFit team in BSB. He's yeah, he, he he rode his ass off at the eight hours last year with with Team Green to to finish in second overall, and you know the, to, to put in a proper shift of it happen. He's he's a he's a very likable guy, um, very reasonable, um, to, to, and yeah, for probably a lot easier to work with. He, he's, he's like Hazen will never go on, on on a sort of like terrain like that with. With Sykes has done in the past because Sykes is a bit of a hothead. There's no getting around that. He's done this before with people like with Loris Baz. I'm sure it was a lot more justified back then, but that's just Sykes' character. So yeah, when you look at it, when you weigh all that up, Haslam is the perfect fit for that situation. On, on ability alone, he's probably not going to touch Jonathan over a 26 race season. But as a as a better number two, as a guy that you know is a more of an ideal teammate for for, for Kawasaki's situation, um, yeah, I think it's a perfect fit. It looks that way. We'll we'll see if that does indeed um, become a reality. Uh, Leon Haslam was uh, asked about this, and he, he said that you know Link Up would be a dream, um, and the Kawasaki team boss uh, Green Roda did not deny that there were talks with Haslam taking place when he was asked about it at Laguna Seca last weekend. Mm-hmm. So um, there is no smoke without fire on that one. So we'll see if that one does come to fruition. I suppose Dawn might not necessarily be too. Um, enamoured with that change, they were thinking, well, that's just what we need, another uh, top-line British rider into the World Superbike Championship. Um, they, I think they'd much rather a Bautista or someone from, from MotoGP, wouldn't they, um, coming across into that spot, but Kawasaki will clearly um, argue otherwise. As far as Tom Sykes and where he goes, um, it looks like he's going to stay in World Superbikes, um, and it looks at the moment as if the likely spot that he will slot into is the GRT Yamaha team. Um, mm-hmm. team that, if that name sounds familiar, they run uh, at the front of World Super Sport. They run currently Lucas Mayas, uh, Federico Caracasulo. So they are um, they are a champion team of the Super Sport class from last year. They would essentially be to the Yamaha factory team what Pochetti are to Kawasaki um, mm-hmm. in World Superbikes at the moment. Um, personally, for me, Dre, if I was Tom Sykes, if Haslam's going to take the spot, it, if Haslam's going to take the spot in the factory team in Kawasaki in World Superbikes, I'd be taking Haslam's spot in the SpeedFit team in BSB, um, and go and go to a, go to a championship where he can continue to compete at the front, continue to win, potentially win a British championship. Um, but it looks like Sykes is going to stick around in World Superbikes and ride in what will essentially be a factory spec Yamaha in a satellite team. Um, mm-hmm. As a move for Sykes, I mean, where does that sit with you? If you were Sykes, would that be the route you'd go? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously there could be financial, and you know, only Tom knows those details. But from a from a purely from a riding standpoint, I don't see that the Yamaha team immediately challenging for wins, and they're going to eventually hit the roadblock of dealing with the Pata team with with Lowe's and Vandermark if they keep that lineup for next year. 
Like, you're not going to get past those two because those two are very formidable riders indeed, especially Van der Mark, who's, who's again, is having a brilliant season um, right now. So um, I think, I mean, I didn't think about it until you brought it up before we went on the air. And I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Him going to speed fit in, in, in Kawasaki, he, he could be a, a great mentor figure to Luke Mossy, who's, you know, got great potential in that class. You can immediately challenge for a domestic title, I think, with that team. It's a great bike. It's it's, it's more than capable of winning races. And Sykes, as a rider of his quality, should still be able to walk in there and still be an immediate title challenger, no matter what happens. So, yeah, I think, I mean, it, it depends on what Sykes' motivations are. He's just that happy with being in Aussie Bikes and a fair play to him. But from where I'm sitting, I think... I think you're right. I think the, the move to speed fit and the domestic series, which is just as popular these days as Worlds is, I think it makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. He did, of course, like many of the riders in uh, MotoGP and indeed in World Superbikes that are British, they have come from the British Superbike uh, program. He raced in BSB back in 2008 when he was on the Rizla Suzuki. Um, he has actually won two BSB races as recently as 2010. Um, this was back as a, at a time when Paul Bird ran the Factory Kawasaki World Superbike team and actually would take the World Superbike team to the Brands Hatch GP Summer BSB round as a wildcard team. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sykes turned up and won two out of three races, as you do, um, as, as uh, the World Championship team running in the British Championship when he had Lloyd John the scores as his teammate. Um, he was a rider that Sykes actually named in that interview in Eurosport when he was teammates with the scores and how there was absolutely zero issues within the team. Um, which again was uh, Sykes trying to throw a bit of shade his teammates' way. Um, as I mentioned, Tom Sykes, he's fourth all-time in terms of all-time World Superbike race starts. Um, he's, I think he's top five all-time in World Superbike race wins. Of course, he's the record holder for poles. Um, so he's he's got so many, you know, his numbers are you know, comparable with just about anybody in World Superbikes, but of course, he's they're not comparable with the man in the same team as him. And really, ultimately... The war of words that we saw on Saturday, the two riders handled it very, very differently once they got out on the racetrack um, on Saturday mm-hmm. and Sunday, um, which is what we'll come on to now. Because, as I mentioned, Tom Sykes' race weekend, from a riding point of view, is not even really worth discussing. It was 7th and 8th. He was really a non-factor um, last weekend um, as he suffered with tyre problems. Jonathan Ray, though, Dre, um, it, it seems that no matter what goes on off-track, no matter what is said in his direction off-track, Jonathan Ray just gets on with the businesses racing and yet again, another dominant double from him. Untouchable. Simple as that. Um, he had to work for a little bit in race. Getting his first pole position of the year. Had to start from pole there. to had to work his way through a little bit, but Chaz made a critical mistake at the corkscrew and a, a ballsy opportunistic pass from Jonathan around the outside on the exit. But he, once he took the lead again, like Davis just did not have the pace to run with him. Um, Chaz openly admitted it before race two. He probably still wouldn't have won that race anyway, he said, because he just didn't have the pace in the second half of the tyre um, in the second half of that race to really keep up with his lap times and whatnot. So yeah, Jonathan ended up um, taking it fairly comfortably in the end, but um, but by any measure, um, another pair of brilliant performances. Jonathan was just unbeatable. Um, it's it, it never gets. I mean, it's easy to to maybe overcompliment a little bit and on how well he does, but when he's riding this well, he's unbeatable. It's as simple as that. He is literally unbeatable, and and again, there's no one have an answer for him all weekend. Um, just. His race pace is just was just completely scintillating, and yeah, no one, no one was even close. This weekend, mm, yeah, he's now moved seventy five points clear 
um, at the top of the World Championship. We are, well, we are into the second half of the season now, even though we're still in June. It's the uh, the feature of the World Superbike calendar that there are only five rounds to go. We have a round at Mizano uh, in around a week's time and then a two-month break before we return um, for Portimao in September. Um, so we are actually quite close to the end of the season um, in terms of number of races mm-hmm. for World Superbikes. And um, we're already now starting to get into the realms of when will Jonathan Ray wrap up the championship? It could well be at Argentina, the penultimate round. Um, you might not even need to go to Qatar um, to, to wrap up the championship. Certainly if he keeps up his current lead, he'll have it wrapped up at the penultimate race weekend of the season. Um, and, and what was just really striking for me, particularly in race two, I mean, in race one, it was simple. It was just one mistake from Chas Davies was one too many. Um, because as soon as he let Jonathan Ray through, um, he, there was no there was no way back for him. He was able to sort of just about hang on to the tail of Ray um, once he was following him in race one. But there was another mistake towards the end of that race where he gave away a bit more time. And uh, I said this in Bruno um, when describing Jonathan Ray's race one victory where it's his death by a thousand cuts in that he, yeah. he, he doesn't necessarily pull out a second a lap early on and then control it from there he just all he does is just chip it away chip away at that consistency that two tenths a lap faster than anybody else that two to three tenths every lap that you know before you know it with by the time five six laps have gone past you've lost a second and that's it um you know he doesn't do it all in one go but he just has that incredible relentless consistency that if you make mm-hmm. one mistake that's you done um and that was mm-hmm. the case with Chas davis in race one in race two it, it was as a measure of his confidence, Dre, just how patient he was with it. You know, we're, we're so used to seeing Jonathan Ray go from ninth to first in a lap or two. He didn't pass yep. Eugene Laverty in the end for the lead until lap seven. But this was a guy, clearly, who had such incredible race pace that he could basically take as long as he needed. Yeah, it, it looked so easy out there for him. It, I mean, yeah, he didn't just pass off a dozen people by the end of lap two. He had to take his time on this one. He picked off his teammate, Tom Sykes, very quickly. But um, the other guys around him were, were quicker than he was expecting. I mean, it took him a little while to get past, um, you know, the, the two Yamahas and to Eugene Laverty at the front. Um, you know, it took him a little bit longer than he usually does. But you could see he was two or three taps a lap faster every single time. Um, he was just super good at that. And, and yeah, one, like, he could have taken as long as he needed. And again, by the time he got to the front, he, he was clear. He was gone. There was there was no one even in the same postcode. He could just take his time and just it. It made it look so easy. It didn't look like he was pushing it all out there. He just looked like I'm going to take my time, um, you know, and j- just pick these guys off when he needs to pick them off. And yeah, it was as simple as that for him. Yeah, when you're when you're able to do that and essentially, you know, take as little risk as possible getting through the field, it, it essentially negates the jeopardy of the race to reverse grid format because mm-hmm. he, didn't, he didn't have to take these um, dairy moves that it ultimately whatever your view on it caught him out and saw him come unstuck in Bruno. it was because he was trying to take risks early on to get through the field as quickly as possible he didn't have to take those risks at the second because he had such strong pace and there was you know 25 laps to to make up the, the distance he knew that just as long as he kept that pace up he would get there eventually um mm-hmm. and that's that's what it proved in the end in race two two Brilliant victories from Jonathan Ray. Two second places for Chaz Davies, though, Dre, who who followed him up in both races. And it has to be said, for the last two or three rounds, Donington um, in particular, and indeed at Bruno, Chaz Davies had been a little bit off his usual pace, hadn't he? He'd been slower than Melandri at, at Bruno. Um, and, you know, back into the top ten in race one. 
Uh, but Donington, a little bit stronger in race two, but he didn't have the pace early in the race when he really needed it, and he came on strong a little bit too late in that second race at Donington. So this was a kind of a return to form that Chas Davies kind of needed. It was, yeah. I mean, before race two in Bruneau, and even then that was a gift of the attrition that was in said race. But before then, he'd gone three races without being on a podium, which is very un-Chaz Davis-like with, with a bad run of form in that Ducati camp. But as you said, back on form at Laguna Seca, that was the best that was available to him that weekend. Jonathan was just a little bit too good um, this weekend. But Chaz was clearly best of the rest. He was comfortable out there and had his first pole position of the season, which um, was a nice surprise. And, you know, again, like Chaz... In, especially in race one, like, as you said, one mistake was one too many. He had to be absolutely flawless to have a chance of winning that race, and he wasn't. Um, but even so, that's 40 well-needed points. He's now, you know, put a little bit of daylight between himself and Vandermark now in the, in, the, in the race for second. He's now 30 points ahead of Vandermark in the championship, who struggled this weekend, as well as Sykes, who, again, was was bottom end of the top eight on both races. So um, a, a, a much-needed 40 points um for Chaz on this one and in the context of the fight for second and you know just, just not to lose too much damage to Jonathan than already a distant title race I mean it could have easily been a lot worse than 75 points by the end of the weekend I mean that was the maximum Chaz had available to him this weekend and he took it yeah he did he took uh exactly what was an offer for him um in the absence of much closer risk in the front we kind of had to look a bit deeper in the field for the big stories on track we'll go in the second weekend unquestionably though uh Eugene Lamartie was one of them um, first of all, for a an interesting piece of, of history, if you if you like your trivia in World Superbikes, he became, in the eight rounds this season, the eighth different man to start on pole position for race two, um, which is an incredible piece of trivia. We've had Chabby Forres in Australia. We had um, Leon Camier um, later on in the season. We had him uh, on pole for race two in Thailand. Um, we had Melandri and Aragon on race two pole. We had Sykes, of course, at Assen. Uh, where, of course, he won from race two pole. Chaz Davies was on race two pole at Imola. Uh, at Donington Park, we had Alex Lowe's on race two pole. And at Bruneau, we had Michael van der Mark uh, on race two pole. Laguna Seca, it was Eugene Lamity's turn. Um, and just as the organisers would have hoped for, Dre, the race two pole man converted it into a podium. And it has to be said, this is a result that's good for the championship, good for Eugene Lamity, of course, good for Aprilia. Um, and it's, it is fair to say as well, though they've still been a little bit further away from where they would ideally want to be. The improvements have certainly been there for, for Aprilia, and this is a, a justified reward for the improvements that that team has been making. Yeah, absolutely. This this has been coming for with Aprilia. Like, it's not like they've never had any the podium in Laverty. You had you know a pair of fourth places going in, uh, going in before this podium and a top six as well during race one of Bruno. They have been closer to the front in the last couple of rounds compared to where they normally are at. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They've they've ha- they've mingled with top fives for a long time in and out of that sort of area. So a podium was going to happen at some point, I think. But it doesn't take anything away from Eugene Laverty. That was a fantastic performance. He he, he had such a brilliant style. He, he, he was able to, to to bench quite a lot of people in there and get a good gap going. Um and of course, it was brought in by Davis and Ray towards the end of that race. But even so, that was a that was a great ride from Eugene, and a good you know good for the championship to have another manufacturer on the podium because again, Aprilia has been in a dogfight for a long time to get into this sort of position. And um, yeah, as you said, it's it's great that Laverty, a guy that you know came back from a very serious injury earlier this season, um, you know missed you know, missed two weekends from it. 
and we were, we were fearing the worst when it first happened and you know as as it happened live on on, on during thailand itself mm. it, it was great it was, it was great it's great to see him back up the front where he belongs his first podium since returning to world superbikes after his moto gp time and uh yeah he was genuinely delighted to be on there and, and i think most of the paddock were too because he again he's he's ridden really well this season so I'm glad he's got a podium to show for it, and just just as overall to show the improvements for a prettier as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's Eugene Laverty's first World Superbike podium um, since. Uh, let me scroll back. Let me look through this. 2014, when he was on the uh, Suzuki in Sepang Race One. That was the last time Eugene Laverty was on a World Superbike podium. It's the first podium for Aprilia, and, and I completely forgot about this. I think everyone had because it was a very forgettable result. Aprilia's first podium in World Superbike since Lauis its Ring Race Two, 2016. When, of all people, Alex DeAngelis got on the podium for the IOTA team in a wet race too. Yikes. Um, in that one. Um, so that's, that's over two years, uh, or pretty much exactly two years, since Aprilia have had a bike on the podium. First time for the factory team since uh, since Torres and Haslam were on their bikes in 2015. Um, but, yeah, a, a much-needed result for them, and the, the team is clearly making progress. Usually, has already said publicly that he is targeting... Um, pot him out. That's a, that's a race weekend where he thinks he can really, you know, run towards the front mm. there. Um, and and he and he badly wanted that podium because he, he still feels the pain of that lost win potentially at Phillip Island very dearly um, when he was mm. he was checking out at the front of race two in in Phillip Island right at the start of the season and fell off um, at the front of the race. Um, so for him to finally you know get that monkey off his and a prettiest back and get on the podium was a much needed result for that team. Yeah, the other man to step on a podium this weekend behind Ray and Davis in race one this time, of course, was Alex Lowe's, um, who backed up his maiden win um, at Bruno with a podium in the very next race, race one um, at Laguna Seca. Um, and for the, the entire weekend, it has to be said, Lowe's was a level ahead um, of Michael <laughs> Vandermark, beat him in both races, um, slightly more comfortable um, in race one than it was in race two. Race two, he did have to follow Vandermark for quite a way. Um, in that race, and then sort of gapped him at the end. Um, in race one, Lowe's was up in third, while Vandermark struggled some 14 seconds back down the road in eighth. Um, so, you, Alex Lowe's from a couple of weeks ago, and Vandermark got that double at Dointe Park, and we started to fear for Alex Lowe's a little bit. He really has dragged himself right back onto terms with Vandermark a little bit. And speaking after that podium in race one, um, Alex Lowe's said, I quote, I quote, I won't be satisfied until I'm battling with Ray every weekend. Um, which really has to be the attitude of him and mm. the Yamaha team. And it's you know, it, it's easy for him to say that, but that's kind of the attitude that you want him and Yamaha to have. Exactly. I mean, like, like when, the, when these rules were first brought in, we looked at Yamaha and circled them and said, this was the team that was meant to most benefit from it. And to a degree they have, but it's, it's been more Vandermott that's, been, that's, that's great to benefit from these results so far this season. But that's now the third race in a row that Alex Lowe's has, 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 has beaten Michael Vandermark over the line head to head. Um, so, yeah, like, as, like after the wins that van der mark had he's not really been the same guy since then um it's 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 been it's been up and down for him but like, again alex lowes is, is clearly thinking bigger he's thinking you know we've got to be challenged jonathan ray that's the, of course that's the goal if you're, a, if you're a factory team like yamaha or if you're a rider of alex lowes quality a, a domestic superbike champion that, you know, in his own right um why wouldn't you be thinking that way it's also quite scary that, that that's only his third podium of the entire season, um, believe it or not, for Alex Lowe's. But um, yeah, like like the bike is clearly better. It's clearly more consistent. It's performing closer 
to where it needs to be. So, yeah, why not think big? You've got to be thinking championship. You've got to be thinking more frequent wins, um, especially with the rules and how they are, and especially with how, you know, they, they've been the benefactors of rev limit changes and, and whatnot. So, yeah, why wouldn't they be thinking bigger? Absolutely. Yeah, it's certainly a rider and a team just collectively that are making progress. Um, and, you know, that is now the... That counts, count the world. That's the seventh consecutive race. Alex Lowe's has been in the top six. Um, five of those, he's been in the top four. Um, cost three fourth places to go with his win and his podium. Um, from last weekend, his win, of course, was at Bruneau. Um, so the team's clearly getting there. And it looks straight as well as if the, there's going to be continuity within that team. Because of course, there were strong rumours a couple of months back that Tom Sykes was perhaps going to switch to the Yamaha factory team with Vandermark yeah. perhaps going the other way um, to Kawasaki. But I suppose from Yamaha's point of view now that both of their riders have now proven what we wanted them to prove, that they can win in World Superbikes. Um, Vandermark with that double at Donington, Lowe's converting that win at Bruno. So both riders have, have proven they can win and have elevated themselves in World Superbikes. So really, the team's point of view, they now know that the riders essentially are no longer an issue. They can keep the same continuity of rider lineup, but now really the pressure is on them to make the general package better. Absolutely, like like the riders are doing a bit, you know. Um, the riders are doing their bit now. Vandermark both won at least one round each. They have three wins, which is, which is the most they've had as a team since since this R1 came into play. They've clearly taken a big step forward here. So you know where they were going from, you know, f most of the time being the third best bike in the field and you know fighting for fourths and fifths for the most part and the occasional podium. To, to now basically winning races and, you know, being on the podium much more frequently. I mean, Van, I mean, Van der Mark has had one, two, three, four, five, six this season. Lowe's has had three. So they're up to nine for the season already. And they're, they're bound to be thinking for more between now and the end of the season. So, yeah, Yamaha now has to be sitting there and going, you know what? The right, they're not going to get a better quality team than this, I think, at the moment. I mean, there's no one really out there that screams this is going to make their team better that's openly available for next season. So from where I'm sitting, you know, it's for me, it's I, I think they've got to be thinking now we've got to get the bike into, into play. Like, like they have the rules on their side like that. That certainly helps. So to me. At least from where from I'm sitting, the, the, the factory's going to have to give them more to really challenge Kawasaki and Ducati on a more frequent basis. Yeah, and it does seem as if Yamaha are sort of trying to shake the tree a little bit and get a little bit more support from the, the Yamaha factory, more from Yamaha Europe than Yamaha uh, in Japan. Um, mm -hmm. But they're certainly looking for a bit more support um, to try and take them and close that gap on Kawasaki, who clearly have an advantage, not just in terms of their performance, but just in terms of pure budget and, and manpower, mm -hmm. which is enabling them to do what they do. Um, a, couple of Kawa a couple of Ducati riders who we're going to touch on briefly, Xavi Forres, who had a bit of a return to form, still not quite at the level he was at around Aragon time, uh, earlier in the season, where we genuinely looked like a win was coming. Um, he doesn't mm -hmm. quite look like he's on that level anymore, sadly, at the moment, Xavi Forres, but a couple of top six results for him uh, last weekend, sixth in both races. Um, which is much more like it from his point of view. Um, I want to quickly, though, talk about Marco Melandri Drake. Um, he finished fifth in race one, um, just ahead of Forez, um, but some 13 seconds behind his teammate, Chas Davies, and he then decked it in race two. Um, mm -hmm. And I've been crunching the numbers on this. Marco Melandri, who is now down um, as low as sixth in the championship, he's dropped behind Alex Lowe's now. Um, he dropped behind him, of course, at Bruneau. Um, he got a podium at Imola. That was... Um, 
around about well seven races ago he finished third since then he's gone dnf 22nd which was with a crash 11th second yeah. 15th with a crash fifth and another retirement um he's on 168 points 50 of which came at the first weekend in australia since then he's averaging eight points around which is essentially eighth place in each race um yikes the the the, the, the sharp decline really this season in marco melandri's results and performances is is staggering and worrying if you're Ducati. Surely now this team has got to be having serious discussions in-house as to, you know, what do we do with this guy going forward? Surely there's a better option out there. Why not give Lorenzo Savadori a call? Given that he's on the Aprilia right now, he's another homegrown Italian. and he's run over his... Ronaldo up, that's what I'd be doing. Yeah, my, well, yeah, give, yeah, Ronaldo's been solid at the European rounds. Again, he had his he had his best result of Bruno so far, a sixth place there on that day, which Marco Melandri's only had two sixth place finishes or better in his last seven races. Um, only one podium in the last seven races, two in the last ten. No matter which way you slice it, like Marco Melandri has the whiff of the Davide about him at the moment, and that's not a good thing because Davide was the guy they were trying to replace for a rider that was able to give Chaz a little bit more help in winning the championship, especially the manufacturer's title that's, that's eluded them in recent times. They need a better second rider to realistically challenge for that. And at the moment... Kasi have now fallen 45 hmm. points behind Kawasaki in the manufacturer's championship. Yeah, that's going to inch away from them because the way it's going, like Sykes, okay, Sykes is a weakness in that team, but Jonathan is not screwing up. He's been off the podium once in the last twelve races. Like, like, like that's like you're not going to beat him doing things like that. So, Marco Melandri has been has been poor by his standards since Imola, um, and like it's 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 the inconsistency, the mistakes. It's 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 exactly what you don't want your number two rider to be doing. So, like you look at the field around them right now. Why not either bump up Ronaldo, give Xavi Forez a call, who again seemed to screw his head back on because he's another guy that's had a, a bit of a bad run of form by his standards. Um, or again, again, I mentioned in the house, you want to keep it Italian. Why not give Lorenzo Savadori a go, who again has had a, was ridden pretty well for that a prettier team so far this season, given it's only I think his second season in the top flight. Um, Again, like, why not keep it in-house if you want to keep it as an Italian home guy on the second bike? But, yeah, the way it's going right now, Marco Melandri, um, by his standards and by Ducati standards, is not where they need to be right now, especially given how strongly they started said season when they were breathing down Jonathan's neck. Mm. Tell you, I'd love to see on that bike as well. It's not, it's, it's not even slightly realistic, really. But I'd just love to see it, Michele Pirro. I'd love to. I'd, I know he's a Ducati Motor yeah, test rider, but we'd awesome. love, I'd love to see him on that bike as well in World Superbikes because he has ridden uh, the odd replacement ride in Superbikes before and done a very good job when he's uh, when he has stepped in. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, that's that's just basically me playing fantasy booking really on that one. Uh, but of sure. course, of course, when you have riders like Scott Redding and Alvaro Bautista being linked with moves to World Superbikes, both of those riders have Ducati links from their MotoGP careers. Scott Redding, of course, has um, been on the podium for Ducati in MotoGP at Assen. Bautista currently rides a customer Ducati in MotoGP with the Nieto team. Um, so they would both perhaps be options. What might save Melandri's place in that team for next year is the fact that they're going to be running a new bike, an all-new bike, the V4 next year, and they might just want a rider with Marco's level of experience um, to develop that bike in its first year. Uh, that might just come to his rescue within that team, but clearly on performances at the moment, he's not really pulling his weight um, within Ducati. Um, but um, but elsewhere then, uh, Honda, they had a, a bit of a mixed weekend. Leon Camier... 
spilling it in both races, although he was kind of helped out of uh, race one by a, a touch with Lorenzo Sabadori. Um, Camille, in the end, didn't finish that race. He was um, you know, unclassified. He then had a crash in race two, remounted, finished 13th. Um, but two career best results for his teammate, Jake Gagné. He got his first ever top 10 in race one. Uh, of course, Gagné in America at his home round. He then went one better in race two, finishing ninth. Um, both of those occasions, though, over half a minute off the race winner, it has to be said. Um, I mean, Drake... <laughs> For, I mean, he's not a rider we've really ever talked about on this show, Jake Gagne, because he's always kind of been in the background of World Superbikes. Mm-hmm. But um, whilst we, he deserves a bit of praise for what were his best ever results in the World Superbike paddock, when we look at his general body of work in this series and compare him to Kamiya, you kind of feel he's skating on thin ice within that Honda team. Yeah, it looks like he's not going to be back next said it on the full throttle podcast and on tv regarding you know world superbike silly season and whatnot it's looking like gang is not going to be returning next season um given the results he's had you know, only two top tens and again both at his home round which you, you kind of expect um the americans always tend to go better around here um and especially when you line that up against Leon Camier, who again is, I mean, I mean, Honda in general don't look as good as they did last year. And, and that's Miss BB and Frank. I mean, it, that that bike and that team is still clearly a work in progress. Because they have to but, change electronics mid season, haven't they? Indeed. And and when you, meant, I mean, when you look at guys like Jason O'Halloran, given how impressive he was in his limited running um, at, at Imola earlier this season, where he looked like he could have been a guy that could have scored some half decent points in his first weekend with the team out of nowhere. Um, before he broke his ankle, um, for me, I think Gagne is is holding up a seat for somebody else potentially, and they probably should. Be, I mean, they get, they get me wrong. It was a, a nice pair of results for him this weekend, but that's the kind of rides we were expecting from Gagne when he first came in, and overall, he hasn't really delivered. No, and uh, I mean Honda, in terms of their points score for the season, they are making progress. They're up to 100 points now, and they're they're ahead of MV Augusta and BMW in the Manufacturers Championship, and. Whilst that might seem like a bit of a false position, given that they have more riders, BMW and um, MV only have the one rider in the manufacturer's championship. It is simply the first rider from each manufacturer that scores the points. Mm-hmm. So you only need one rider, essentially. Um, but where that does punish MV and BMW is if their one rider fails to finish, they score nothing. Um, but uh, but Honda are currently up in fifth um, in the manufacturer's championship. And they scored 113 points last season for the entire campaign. So... You know, after by the time Mizano's in the books, they're probably going to have already passed surpassed their points tally of 2017. So progress is being made, and they'll be another team, I suppose, looking to next year once they've finally um, got their head around the new electronics that they'll be able to really show what they're capable of. Um, and Camille really didn't give Honda a chance of converting that into points of the weekend because he didn't finish um, either race without crashing um, along the way. Um, as far as those other manufacturers are concerned, uh, I mentioned BMW, Loris Baz. Um, he ended, he ended up having to come through Super Bowl 1 to qualify towards the front of the grid. He only scored one point in race 1 because he had a crash and then had to remount and finish a lap down. He then had to come from a disastrous start where he was last after lap 1 to finish 10th. Um, MB Augusta, though, Charlie Torres, he had a good weekend. He finished 7th in race 2 ahead of Tom Sykes, which arguably might say more about Sykes' weekend than Torres's. Um, mm. but, but even so, to beat a factory Kawasaki on an MB Augusta um, deserves mentioning. Um, one rider, though, we have to mention before we move on uh, to the news, though, Dre, um, is Top Rakrasgati Oglu, um, who we, mm-hmm. we wish the very, very best because he broke his toe last weekend in one of the sort of more sort of scary accidents I think I've seen in a while on a superbike. Yeah. 
Um, there are no good places to crash straight in monocycle racing at all, but on the descent from the corkscrew, it's pretty much the last place I choose to hop off a superbike. Yeah, that uh, is not a good place. That, that obviously the corkscrew being as bumpy as it is, and you know, just kind of being a bit of a relic of motorcycle racing in general. Um, God, you don't want to lose it there, and it was a a, a, a nasty, nasty high side. Um, and yeah, I'm. Oof. It, it it was nasty. He did, he did not race um, in race two because of the broken toe that he suffered. Um, and again, I wish him the best because uh, that was that was all sorts of nasty. Um, I've, God, I, I don't envy him on that one at all. That is a nasty, nasty accident. And uh, yeah, rough, oof, that was a scary one. Luckily, it was only a broken toe, and it, I think it could have easily been a lot worse on that one. Putting putting the throttle down the corkscrew like that is, is is all sorts of scary. Yeah, the last place you want to high side off a superbike. But uh, yeah, he uh, he broke his big toe in his left foot, and that had to uh, that that left him unfit for the second race of the weekend because this crash happened in race one. He was unable to start race two, um, but the bike was totaled as well. Manuel Pachetti saying that the bike was completely destroyed apart from the engine, so it wasn't really. Um, in good shape after the uh, accident, and much like its rider. Um, but he should be back, all being well, for Mizano um, next weekend. Um, one other rider that we're going to quickly mention, um, because I'm sure that all of you who listen to this regularly after every World Superbike round will be thinking, why are they going to mention Andre Jezek? Well, this is your lucky week. Um, unfortunately, hey. unfortunately, it's not for good reasons. Um, so, oh. if so if you're a fan of him, um, yeah, this isn't really the moment you're waiting for. But yeah, basically... Um, it's in one of those news in brief columns on in MCN, so I thought I'd mention it. Um, because Jezek was, of course, uh, replaced at the Guandolini Yamaha team last weekend by Carol Haneke. Um, and it has to be said, when you're getting bumped out of your team for Carol Haneke, I mean, brother, yeah. You, you, yeah, you need to move on, find a new career. Um, but, but Jezek <laughs> said um, uh, to the press, he told MCN last weekend, I sat at the corkscrew and wanted to cry. Um, I have paid the team for 95% of the season, but they said I was bad-mouthing them in my press releases. Um, so um, Jezek was essentially benched um, and replaced um, by Carol Haneke. Um, and it, it's interesting, because we, we, we had a discussion, didn't we, Dre, on, on Monosport 101 this week about Arjun Maney um, and his very oh. um, vocal show of emotion, which, of course, had there were reasons behind that based on the the reliability of his spec series um, machine that he was driving uh, in mm -hmm. F2. Um, but Andre Jezek, he's another one. And it, it's it's another example, much like Maney in F2, much like some drivers in F2, where these guys are essentially paying for their careers. They're not being paid for it. Um, right. And yeah, for Jezek to essentially be booted out of his team for essentially not being too complimentary about them uh, in the press, based on the fact that he's Andre Jezek and it's Grandelini Yamaha, I don't know who was actually going to have read this anyway. Um, based on where this team is, but it, it, it's rare, isn't it, that we see such these these public shows of emotion where these riders essentially lay bare just how painful their careers are turning out to be for them. Yeah, that's that's not nice. That's that's not a nice situation. It's a lose lose for everybody. I mean, no one wants the rider to be criticising the team in public, but even so, I mean, you guys are at the bottom of the field. Like Jezek is the lowest, is the lowest scoring regular finisher in the championship. Um, like, what are you really talking about here? I mean, yeah, okay, the guy's paying for his seat, and, and he's, he's helping to fund the team. Like, benching him's not going to do you much good in the grand scheme of things. So I don't see, I don't see what, like, you know, I, I, I don't see what you're getting from doing something like that. Really, to be honest with you, it's, it's what's one of those things where you just go, huh, really? And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a crazy story, really. But unfortunate, that's, that's the nature of how the team's going to act, you know. 
Yeah, Yezek, who, of course, had his home round um, a couple of weeks ago at Bruneau. He is literally from Bruneau, so it was his local round um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, he is uh, 28 years old, um, is Yezek. In fact, he's 29, turned 29 um, earlier this year. Uh, as Dre mentioned, he is the lowest scoring regular rider. He's only got two points this season. Um, he's on a Yamaha R1, and as it seems at the moment, um, we may not see him scoring many more um, for the rest mm. of the season. We'll see if he's back next week. Um, at Mizano. Um, here's how the two races finished then at Laguna last weekend. Jonathan Ray winning race one from Davies and Lowe's um, with Laverty in fourth to secure race two pole. Michael Melandry fifth ahead of Forres in sixth. Tom Sykes seventh ahead of Vandermark, Torres and Gagne who got his first top ten. Uh, Yoni Hernandez, Roman Ramos, the aforementioned Carol Haneke, uh, Lorenzo Savadori and Loris Bass took the remaining points. Um, in race two, Ray came through from ninth to win again from Davies and Laverty this time. Laverty's first podium in World Superbikes for four years. Um, Alex Lowe's fourth ahead of his teammate Van der Mark. Forrest sixth again. Torres up in seventh ahead of Sykes, who had his miserable weekend compounded and came to an end with only eighth. Jake Gagne ninth and Baz in the, on the BM tenth. Leandro Mercado scored points in 11th ahead of Ramos. Camilla have remounted, finished 13th. Carol Haneker 14th. And Yoni Hernandez, the final point, the 15th. Just ahead of the wildcard, Josh Herring, former Moto 2 rider mm-hmm. um, and Moto America regular, um, who just narrowly missed out on points um, on the same Yamaha that he'd been riding in the Moto America races that same weekend. So he was pretty tired uh, by the end of the weekend. Uh, the championship standings then, Jonathan Ray leads it. 320 points now. He's 75 clear of Chaz Davies in second. Davies is in turn 30 points ahead of Vandermark in third. Tom Sykes is fourth. He's uh, 19 behind Vandermark. Alex Lowe's is 13 behind Sykes in fifth. Melandry is 15 behind Lowe's in sixth. Forres is 14 behind Melandry in seventh. Then a big gap to top wrecker Asgatioglu in eighth on 91. He's now only two points ahead of Laverty, who jumped five places last weekend from 14th up to 9th um, with his best points haul of the season. He's on 89. Torres is in 10th position on 80. Uh, just hit a Baz on 79 on Leon Camier, who has dropped to 12th in the championship on 75 points. Next round of the World Superbike Championship is next weekend. As I mentioned, it is at Mizano in Italy, which also, as we, as you could have no doubt imagine, sees the return of the World Super Sport, World Super Sport 300 and Super Stock 1000 classes. They are back in action as well next weekend. Let's uh, move on to the news and uh, a lot of Suzuka eight-hour news to bring you this week because the field is taking shape ahead of um, the biggest superbike race, arguably in the world. Um, of course, the superbike world championship would argue differently, but in terms of a single standalone event, this is perhaps as big as it gets um, in superbike circles. Um, of course, it's as big as it gets for Honda because it's taking place in Suzuka, a circuit which they own, a race that they haven't won now um, for a number of years because, of course, Yamaha have dominated the last three years. Uh, HRC have named their official team for the Suzuka Race Out this year. And kind of unsurprisingly, they broke out uh, one of the big guns from their World Superbike team. Leon Kamiya is going to be riding for them. As well as one of their MotoGP riders, Takaki Nakagami, who rides for the LCR team um, in uh, MotoGP. Uh, Takumi Takahashi completes their lineup. He, of course, is one of Honda's uh, test riders. Um, and 
it has to be said, Dre, whilst it's not perhaps as strong as previous years when Honda have had the likes of Van der Mark riding for them, um, back when he was one of their riders, Leon Haslam, of course, was once a Honda rider. We've seen Casey Stoner on that bike in the past when he was a, a Honda <laughs> rider. Um, so it's not quite on that level, but based on what they're being faced with, based on the fact that it's an endurance race, based on the fact that, um, of course, it lasts eight hours, it's a long race, it's, you know, essentially you need riders who make limited mistakes. Leon Camier's not a bad pick to roll out on your bike, is he? No, he again. He's he's always been a really solid factory guy, and um, again, his superbike results have been pretty darn good this season. I don't think the Honda as a package um, in that series has been as good as he's been allowed to show, given his ability. Um, but he's a great development rider, and um, yeah, he's. You think he's earned this opportunity? I think he's a great guy to have on your team. I think he'll be a great team player for Honda going forward, and uh, which is really what it's all about in, in, at that sort of level. Um, and, it, and ultimately, what is a team race? Um, so from where I'm sitting, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how the Honda team gets on, and I think Leon Cami is a great pick for the Honda team. And um, as we mentioned, there have been most of GP riders in the past that have gone over to the eight hour and taken part in this race. Um, not so many this year. As I mentioned, it's just the one really that stands out, and that is Takaki Nakagami. Um, who's who's had a, a pretty solid rookie season, all things considered, in MotoGP this season. And I guess from Honda's point of view, it, it's reward for the work he's been doing for them. Absolutely. Again, he's another guy that's put in a shift. And I mean, let's be real here. They probably want the Repsol guys to do it. But it's, I mean, Crutchlow's been asked about it and Crutchlow's always kind of been tempted by it as well. But he's always said there's just been too many clashes with it and it's never been able to fit it in. But yeah, it's another guy that's had to work really hard. He's, he's putting in some good shifts, and you know, this is this is. I like that this is being treated now more as like an all-star sort of race, an all-star meeting. Of some of the best superbike and some of the better MotoGP guys out there as well on the ladder getting to take part in a one-off, you know, fantastic exhibition event, really, like this one. So yeah, again, I'm really looking forward to seeing how, how it how it turns out going forward. Because this is the final round, the season finale of the Endurance World Championship um, that takes place in, in motorcycle racing. Essentially, it's the WEC on two wheels. Um, mm-hmm. Where last year, of course, the Yamaha GMT94 team won the championship. And um, whilst this does serve as a season finale, the regular Endurance World Championship teams, many of which are based in Europe, many of which are based in France, has to be said. Of course, it's World, world, world Championship Endurance Motorcycle Racing. It's probably bigger in France than it is anywhere else um, in yeah. the world. Um but these teams are going to be playing a bit of a backseat role um, at the Sussex Great Hour as the factory teams from all, each of these manufacturers uh, really dispute the overall race victory. That will include Suzuki, um, who of course will be running the Yoshimura team. Um, now we've seen Alex Lowe's in the past ride for this team, back when he was um, a Voltcom Crescent Suzuki rider um, in World Superbikes. Um, now this year, of course, there's no Suzuki factory team in World Superbikes, so they haven't got anyone from that championship to call upon. Um, mm-hmm. Now they have called upon their MotoGP test rider Sylvain Guintoli, um, former world champion, of course, in his own right, um, alongside their two test riders Takuya Suda um, and Kazuki Watanabe. But they do have a fourth rider uh, in their team, the Yoshimura Suzuki Eight Hour Team. One Bradley Ray, um, who of course has won mm-hmm. races for them in the BSB Championship this season, currently second in the British Superbike Championship um, this year, um, and. Look, we don't we don't need to tell anybody, Dre, how much of a, a great job we think Bradley Ray has done um, in BSB this season. But if ever there was an endorsement from Suzuki for the twenty year old kid, it's the fact that they've given him the vote of confidence to represent them at the eight tower. Yeah, and rightly so. He's been fantastic. Um, I mean, let's not forget he is the current championship, and he's been fantastic for the last 
half a season plus now. Going back to last season, he had taken that bike to places where it hadn't been before. Um, him and Gintoli, to be fair, in BSB, when they got the swing arm and, you know, their riders rewarded them with really solid results. So, yeah, why not? I mean, the thing is, as you, as you mentioned, that's a fantastic endorsement um, for, for for the team that are going to BSB and saying, hey, do you want to go at the eight hours, which is one of the biggest races of the year now? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity for him, and I'm, I'm all for it. Um, it's... it's, it's 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 a brilliant opportunity for Bradley Ray to, to show himself off on the, on the world stage again. So can't wait to see how he turns out. Yeah, it's gonna be great to see how he gets on. Um, other riders who are taking part in the eight hours season that have been confirmed: Dan Limfoot, who of course is a, a BSP race winner. He's going to be racing at the eight hour as well for one of the independent teams um, over there. Uh, Yuichi Kianari, um, who's shown well, he's been on the podium before at the eight hour. He's going to be racing at this uh, this year's race too. Uh, Christian Inn's going to be there. Um, who he's ridden earlier on this season for the uh, one of the Pens, uh, I think it's the Pens 13 team um, in the Endurance World Championship on a BM. So he's going to be there this season too. Um, we'll preview this race at much greater depth a little bit later on. This race takes place on the last weekend of July and we'll, we'll preview it a lot more nearer the time. Um, but just to emphasize, Dre, the point you made about this essentially being an, endur- an endurance race, but also an all-star race in superbike terms. Mm. Um it's a mouthwatering prospect when we when we simply state the fact that for the big four manufacturers um, from Japan, their factory teams read like this: Suzuki have Brad Ray and Sylvan Gintoli on board. Honda have Leon Kamiya and Takaki Nakagami. Um, we also have uh, Yamaha running their winning team from the past two years of Alex Lowe's, Katsuki Nakasuga, and Michael Vandermark, and Kawasaki are running Leon Haslam and the world champion Jonathan Ray. Yeah, like does that not sound like an all-star lineup to you? I mean, like that's some of the that's that's arguably some of the greatest superbike riders. I mean, Jonathan Ray is probably the best you've ever seen in that category. But you're looking at BSB race winners and title contenders, world superbike, you know, championship contenders, um, and, and race winners, you know, MotoGP level riders. Uh, well, it's it's an incredible lineup, you know, full of world champions, full of some of the finest superbike riders on the planet, and. It's it's fantastic to see that more of them are coming over and, and giving this race a go. It's a fantastic exhibition for the for the ca- more casual viewer. Um, obviously, you know, the endurance racing is a much bigger thing, you know, more and more continental Europe, but it doesn't make it any less exciting to have all these names here in one place. And again, again, racing each other, which is something that you would you would just not normally get um, in this sort of environment. So yeah, I'm all for it. I think it's fantastic. Mm, cannot wait for this race. Cannot wait to see how it goes and. Yeah, it's very difficult to pick a winner because Yamaha will probably start as favourites with their number 21 uh, Yamaha R1 that has won the last three years. Um, as I mentioned with Lowe's, Van der Mark and Akasuga. Akasuga, of course, has won this three times because the first year he was teammates with Bradley Smith and Paul Spargo when they were Yamaha's satellite MotoGP riders. Um, but yeah, I, I just wonder whether the fact that Kawasaki have got Jonathan Ray on their team along with Leon Haslam just tilts the balance their way a little bit. Um, we shall see. We'll preview that race, as I mentioned, in much greater depth. Um, in three or four weeks' time in the run-up to um, the Suzuka 8-hour uh, at the end of July. Um, now, further uh, well, further towards British shores, more news uh, has broken about Shaky Burn, because, of course, he's appeared on British TV for the first time since that horrendous crash, which, without putting too fine upon it, nearly killed him uh, at Stetterton, um back mm. when he tested there. Um, and he's spoken very candidly, to Eurosport. He also has spoken in a double-page spread in MCN this week to Ollie Rushby um, of MCN. Um, basically, 
laid bare just how severe the accident was, just how severe the injuries he sustained were and how mm-hmm. bad they could have been. Um, and it, again, just emphasizes, Dre, just how serious this could have been for him. I mean, he, he, he speaks very candidly about the accident itself and in, in great detail about it, about the fact that he crashed at turn three and essentially hit a solid tire wall head first. Mm-hmm. Um, which was astonishing. He said that he hit the wall head first, his head was pushed back, and that's what did the damage to his neck. And this is his own words, my spine opened up like a tin of beans. Um, yeah, that, oh, that, that was the level of damage that was done to him. Um, the mm. surgeon told him that he could fix it by putting all the broken vertebrae back together and attaching a titanium plate to bridge the gap so that everything would heal perfectly. But with my spinal cord dangling about, it was a risky procedure. He said he was already astonished that he wasn't paralysed. Um, but then sat me down and told me he couldn't guarantee that he'd come out of surgery without paralysis and he says he'd have to play with things in my back that aren't supposed to be touched. Um, just purely listening to, to, to Shaky Bird just talk about these things um, is astonishing. Um, in terms of where this leaves him, um, he appears, from what he says to MCN, what he said to Eurosport, that he's not given up on racing again, but he does appear as if he's at peace with the possibility that his career may be over. Yeah, by all accounts, that's what it looks like. It looks like, from where I'm sitting, if this is the end for Shaky, I think he's okay with it. Um, what's more certain, we talked about this off the air, what's more certain is that it seems that his wife is more adamant on him racing on than he is, which is, you know, scary and opens up a whole another can of worms in its own right. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like he is at peace with whatever happens. I don't think he's going to fight it too hard if... if in three months, on the doctors take a look at it and say, you know what, shaky. If you have one more big accident, you may not be able to. You may it may paralyze him. Like I mean that. If you're describing any racing accident as basically my back opened up like a tin of beans, I don't want to see you on a bike again. Like that's a terrifying thought. Again, he's lucky to be alive, and he's even more lucky that he's not been paralyzed. And yeah, that's. it's a terrifying incident. I mean, only Shaky really knows what he wants to do and, you know, more power to him because that can't be an easy thing to live when your livelihood is something you've made your name on for the last 15 plus years could suddenly be yacked out from underneath you like that. Um, it's, 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 it, I, I can't, it must be an awful feeling and I'm not disputing that in the slightest. That, that can't be nice, Mm. but, um, God, I, I, I sincerely hope that, he gets the best advice and he gives it a good hard think about what he wants to do. Because um, as, as he's mentioned, he's got nothing to prove to anybody as a bike rider. He's one of the finest British bike riders we've ever had. He's the greatest BSB champion ever. He's raced in everything, everything that's been worth a damn over the last 15 years. Um, And he's a tremendous TV presenter and pundit as well. He's a, he's a recognizable, um, great face in the world of bike racing and I, I just sincerely hope that he makes the right decision whatever that may be just to uh, just to briefly expand on, on what we what we mentioned about his his wife's role in this um, the, there's a there's a quote from uh, his wife Petra in MCN um, who because um, the surgeon was speaking about shaky burn and what best route to go down with his with his recovery the surgeon told uh, Petra that they'd need to fuse uh, shaky's broken neck bones together. Um, but while that would fix the problem, it could also leave Burn with little to no neck movement. Um, Petra said that when they said that, she said no. Um, she said they shouldn't take away any chance of him riding a bike again. Um, the only alternative was to fit a halo and let it heal unnaturally. Um, now, 
obviously no one would know um especially no husband and wife but they they know each other better than anyone else would know each other um and presumably this is not a conversation that they've simply had at the time they must have this must have been discussed beforehand that, you know, Shaky would want every opportunity to keep his career going. And he's not been put in any danger. I think that's a point that's worth making um, by going this road. It's essentially letting it heal naturally rather than fusing the bones together, um, which is what they've done, which is why he's got the halo, as we've sort of jokingly termed it, the birdcage on his head, mm-hmm. um, which basically holds um, uh, holds it in, holds his head in place with four screws in his skull, attaches it by bars uh, to the vest that you see weighing around his chest that you perhaps can see um, if you've been watching um, him on Eurosport, you see those straps on his shoulders. That's essentially holding um, the halo, as it's called, in place, which prevents any movement from the neck and gives it its best chance of healing properly. Um, it's not a cast iron guarantee, but it gives it the best possible chance. Um, and it appears that Petra was basically simply saying, just you know, don't take this guy's livelihood away. Don't take his dream away. Give him every chance to... Um, have the opportunity to race again, and Shaky Burns absolutely on board with this. He's already in the, as he said, he's already in the hyperbaric chamber trying to heal faster, um, as, as, as motorcycle racers are. Uh, again, it, it just gives us this insight into a motorcycle racer's psyche, and it, it again sets them apart as a breed apart. We struggle to really get our head around mm-hmm. how they manage to process these things. Um, Shaky Burns went on to say that at the minute there's part of my neck that's in bits, the force from the crash shattered the bone. Uh, it might heal, and when I take the halo off, I'll be able to move my neck off. The, all the broken bones might fuse the neck in place. It's a three-month waiting game, so essentially he won't know for another three months basically which way it's going to go. After that, we'll see if there's any movement. If there is, I'll begin physio to build up strength. Uh, he goes on to say, When I woke up from the op and realized I wasn't paralyzed, I was so relieved. From that point, I decided it didn't matter what happened, as I could be a dad and lead a normal life. If my neck moves at the end, great. If it doesn't, I know full well it could have been much worse. Do I want to ride again? Of course. I'm already in the hyperbaric chamber trying to heal faster, but I won't come back until everything's perfect, and ultimately, it might never happen. The only thing I wanted for racing was to be world champion. Even if I come back fit and healthy as ever, I know I'm now not going to get an opportunity to do that. After having a crash where you're told you might be paralysed, it puts things in perspective. Do I really care if someone beats my 85 BSB wins or six titles? Not really. But at present, there's no one close to it, so I'll it'll stand for a good while. This Dre reminds me so much of the moral, emotional dilemma that Keenan Safoglu found himself in around mm-hmm. Imola time. And I can't help but feel the longer Shaky feels about this, he'll probably end up making the same decision Keenan did. Yeah, I mean, that's the impression I get. I mean, I, I think, as I said, given the comments there, I think Shaky's pretty at peace with the whole thing. Um, and, and I think we all would perhaps back him up making this decision because mm-hmm. genuinely, I mean, it, it's it's so easy to say, oh, he's such a nice guy, but there's very few people that I think can think of in motorsport who literally nobody has said a bad word about. Mm-hmm. And Shaky's one of them. Yeah, exactly. I've never had a bad word to say about Shaky in that front. He's a class act. He's been, you know, the face of BSB for years and years and years. He's been he's been the guy to beat. He's a fantastic TV pundit. Um, I can only wish him a just a a as good a quality of life as possible. If if that doesn't include bike riding, then so be it. Um, I, I I sincerely hope that again, whatever decision he makes is one he feels comfortable with. Um, but I mean, I, I hope. I, I, I hope that um, for the sake of his family and for the sake of himself, he he's comfortable, and that's the most important thing. Um, if he rides again, then you know that's the risk he's willing to take. Then so and so be it. But 
Um, from a personal standpoint, I, I, I hope he hangs it up um, because that is... You don't want to be messing with necks if you can help it. Necks are bad across the board, and it's 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 a very delicate situation. I just, again, I just hope whatever happens, he finds peace with it. Basically, hmm. yeah, we we shall see. We'll uh, we'll see how the story unfolds. We wish Shaky Burn the very best in his in his recuperation and his recovery. Whether that leads to a racing return, we shall see. But um, we'll we'll see what Shaky Burn's ultimate decision is on that. Whatever decision he makes, we wish him uh, all the very best. Um, now into MotoGP news, because of course MotoGP returns this weekend with one of its premier Grand Prix on the calendar, the uh, TT Assen in the Netherlands. Um, and we continue with every passing Grand Prix to wait for a potential decision um, regarding this Patronus Yamaha team, uh, which is apparently 99% certain to happen um, with Danny Pedroza and, and uh, Franco Mobidelli as their two riders. They will essentially take over the grid slot left by the Mark VDS team um, in MotoGP. Mark VDS will continue, but only in Moto2, um, for those wondering yep. what that might mean for Alex Marquez. Um, and uh, obviously, we know Joan Mir is moving up uh, out of that team anyway into MotoGP. Um, now, we don't know... 100% certain that this is happening because it hasn't been official confirmation, but it's as near as certain that it's going to be the case, Dre. Um, mm. So we might as well have the discussion today whilst we've got a bit of spare time on this podcast to discuss how we think this team will go. Um, we gather from what we read that it's going to be essentially factory equipment, um, factory M1 Yamaha equipment, but obviously within a satellite independent team run by the Spanish International Circuit with Patrona sponsorship and presumably mm -hmm. some sort of uh, turquoise livery. Um, now, many, many people in the past have said, um, many people who know an awful lot about motorcycle racing and an awful lot about motorcycle riding styles, in particular Danny Pedrosa's, have said that Danny Pedrosa's style will marry up very, very well with the Yamaha R1. Um, where do you stand on it? I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm just kind of happy in a way that if Danny Pedrosa, first of all, Danny Pedrosa stays in MotoGP, uh, but also, mm -hmm. we get to see him on a bike that's not a Honda. Exactly. I mean, this is something that we have literally never, ever seen in, in MotoGP as, as Danny Pizza on a Yamaha. Um, I know a lot of people like Scott Rain, and I know that Valentino has said it in the past that Danny Pedrosa would be a, world, a multiple world champion in the top flight if he was on a Yamaha. Now, these guys know more about bike riding than I do. So I'm, so I'm willing to take their word for it on this one. Um, it's clearly, like, for a guy of his size, I think the Yamaha is probably a better fit in terms of just smoothness and, you know, and, and in terms of, um, you know, not being so aggressive on corner exit. He, he, it seems like he'd be a better fit on that motorcycle compared to what the Honda's characteristics are. And, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very curious. I can't wait for next season to see how this is because... Again, Pedrosa on a Honda is all we've ever known. Yes, for almost two decades, that's all we've ever known of Danny Pedrosa. Um, so just seeing him on what is a you know, a late career experiment with this team and Frankie Morbidelli, who's a great talent, who again again has had a decent season so far for for Honda, but um, but we know that Honda is a difficult bike to learn with. So let's see how it turns out. Um, I, I, again, I'm, I'm very excited for that because again, it's it's too. Very talented riders, especially um, in, in the case of Pedrosa, on a bike that he just has never even touched in over 15 years. So let's see how it goes. I, I, I can't wait to see how to see how it all plays out in this end because 
um, got like that and Yamaha factory back in as well. It's it's a very tasty team and a, and a great lineup. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see uh, how it goes. And you know, there, there have been many many discussions about Pedroza for a number of years in MotoGP. Um, so many people have been very very quick to um, describe him as as a spent force in MotoGP. Um, and uh, you know, perhaps obviously there, there have been talks for, for many many years in on social media and amongst many fans that he needs to be replaced with that Honda team while they now get their wish. Um, and not that I would ever wish any rider or Jorge Lorenzo within that team not to do well, but even if he doesn't do well next season, it would kind of put all of Danny Pedrosa's performances for so many years into perspective and show that he's clearly mm-hmm. better than many people have given him credit for. Um, but he's he's far from a spent force um, in MotoGP. I mean, he's, he, he turns 33 in September, but as Valentino Rossi is showing, age is just a number, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot still compete at the top of mm-hmm. your sport. Um, and the way I've seen Danny Pedrosa really, Dre, I've much less seen him as a, as a spent force, more than a rider who perhaps just needs a change of scenery. He's now got it. Yeah, he's got it. This is a new challenge for him. Um, again, he's he's done basically almost 20 years of Honda backing in terms of all the junior classes he's done as well. He's, he's, Honda's all he's ever known. He's been backed by a Repsol. Um, you know, it, it's it's been a lot for him to handle at the moment. Um, he wanted a change of scenery. He's now going to have that. New team, new package. Lin Jarvis is always, I think, secretly kind of wanted Pedrosa in his camp. Um yeah, and now he, he does when he signed Maverick, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. He said that you know Pedrosa was the backup, was the, was the guy he wanted to sign. If Rossi decided to not honor his his, his, his um, contract we signed, he, he was he admitted he was going to go after Pedrosa. Um, so he's still clearly very highly valued in the paddock, um, probably more so than he is by fans on the internet, um, for better or worse. So yeah, like that's that, that's fantastic to see. It's very very cool. So, yeah, the way it's going, um, gosh, um, the change of scenery and, you know, the, just seeing Pedrosa in different cars is going to be fun, let alone how well he performs. So, yeah, can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah, hopefully it's a, it's a bit of a sort of rebirth for him in his career and just gives him that, that, that energy to go again and just energizes him in, in MotoGP mm-hmm. because, you know, it's clear what a talent he is. And, you know, I've always thought to myself, if, you're, if your main criticism of a rider is that he's not as good as Marc Marquez, then there's clearly not an awful lot wrong with him. Um, no, because no one in the world is as good as Mark Marquez um, as we speak today. Um, so uh, yeah, we will see how that goes. Of course, confirmation on that. The, the, the new rumor is that it's going to be confirmed at the Saxon Rig for the German Grand Prix, which is uh, uh, in a couple of rounds' time. Of course, it's after this weekend, and then the Saxon Ring in July. Um, so we shall see. But that appears to be the way it's going. The uh, Petronas Yamaha team, which is probably going to replace Mark VDS on the grid next year. Um, I we're not going to have an extra team. It's just going to be one team giving way for another uh, with Pedroza and Morbidelli um, basically keeping his spot on the grid but moving from one team to another next year. We'll more, bring you more on that uh, when it's confirmed. MotoGP, of course, returns this weekend uh, with the Dutch Grand Prix, the TT Assen, uh, taking place at the Cathedral. They're never present on the calendar um, ever since its inception. And... If there was ever going to be a race that runs Mugello close, Dre, for the duel in the crown in MotoGP, the premier race on the calendar, Assen might be it, because this is a circuit that, kind of like Mugello, never fails to deliver. Absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a dramatic circuit. It's a high-speed circuit. It's incredibly fun to watch well on television, and it is really brown. I know it's kind of become Valentino land over the last year, of the last decade or so, given his, his, his nine Grand Prix victories there. Um, 
but yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it, it draws massive crowds. It, it does incredibly well. Um, yes, it, this is one of the flagship rounds on the calendar. There's, 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 there's three or four that are on this level, and I think Assen certainly qualifies as one of them. And yeah, it's going to be a massive weekend for the sport. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. And it, it's very interesting as well to hear a few more GP riders this weekend um, saying how they don't want Formula 1 to come to Assen. Um, which I thought was interesting. This talk of perhaps a Dutch Formula One Grand Prix can't help but think. I wonder why that might be. Um, but um, but yeah, they they want a, a Grand Prix in Formula One in the Netherlands, and essentially the modifications would be runoff areas, uh, a lot more tarmac runoff. There would be um, perhaps modifications. The track may need to be relayed because of course the Formula One cars would make it off a lot bumpier. Um, and I can understand why some MotoGP riders don't want that to happen. Um, because, but I take it from me. Any time I go to Silverstone for the most GP, all I hear the riders talking about is how bloody bumpy Silverstone is. Um, because yeah, of, because of the Formula One cars going around it. Indeed, um, especially the current cars, which have so much downforce. So, uh, so yeah, we'll we'll follow that story if Formula One indeed does see its future in the Netherlands. Um, whether it has a future in the Netherlands at all, no doubt they want one because of a certain Max Verstappen. Um, mm-hmm. But whether they have it at Essen, uh, we shall see. Um, in terms of what's happening this weekend, um, we'll talk. We won't really talk an awful lot about what's happening in free practice because by the time you hear this, the race will have probably happened. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but Maverick Vinales was quickest today. The Yamahas look quite good. Um, what I want to talk about, Dre, is is this whole business of uh, penalties for cutting corners, um, which we've mm. seen, seen a lot in Moto3, of course. Dijon Antonio lost a win for it. We saw more penalties in Barcelona. And... <laughs> I, I, I was drawn to a discussion that they had during the lunch break on BT Sports today with Gavin Emmett, James Toastland, and Neil Hodgson. Um, essentially around this business of if a rider makes a mistake and shortcuts a corner, he will be penalised through time, um, much like Gian Antonio was. They will, of course, have some level of discretion based on if they think a rider was forced off the track. Um, but I have to say, Dre, I have this nasty nasty feeling because they brought up the example of Rossi and Marquez 2015 I have this nasty nasty feeling that something's going to happen at the final chicane in one of the three races and we're going to have a race victory decided by a post-race time penalty god I hope I'm wrong oh god I've never thought about it like that and now you mentioned yeah because yeah if you cut a chicane now you will be penalised I mean Jakob Kornfall got another one at Catalina and then he dropped three positions but was still given, I think it was a 1.8 second time penalty. So I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm going, that's bullshit. Like, so. And, and, like, and Hodgson, co- Hodgson and Torsland made a very good point in that uh, if we were to watch, the, if that 2015 Rossi Marquez race happened again this Sunday, surely Rossi would get a time penalty and Marquez would be declared the winner. Well, let's be honest. If that had actually happened, I don't think too many people would have complained anyway. Well, apart from anyone wearing yellow, but yeah, it's contextual. It's like I mean, my bigger issue with with the with the with, with Moto Three is that in the race, the punishment does not fit the crime, and especially in the case I mentioned, Jakob Kornfall of Catalonia, the guy, yeah, he cut the chicane, sure, but he did not gain an advantage by doing so. He did it. He dropped three positions, which in Moto Three is a big deal, and he was still given a penalty on top of that. So. I don't. It's not that I have a problem with time penalties because that the whole the previous rule was drop one position, which of course was a problem in its own right. But it's it's not so much the issue with time penalties; it's, it's the way they're being enforced that I have the bigger problem with here. Um, it's a race. So, it's impossible to follow. 
Exactly, because you now are sitting there wondering what's going to happen if something goes wrong, or, or, or again, if someone cuts a sh- someone cuts a chicane on the final lap. Are, are the stewards going to have the balls to say, "Yeah, we're going to whack an extra second and a half to his race time at the end of the race and decide a winner"? Like that, that could draw some heat. And uh, whew, I don't think people want that after what happened in at Le Mans, where Fabio Di Antonio had a win yanked out of him for something that really wasn't his fault. Mm, yeah, the big headline in Moto3 today, as we speak, on Friday, June the 29th, uh, was a heavy high side for championship. Well, is he championship favourite anymore? Certainly one of the front runners, Jorge Martin. Um, he has been declared fit, though, for the rest of the weekend, so he will ride on um, this weekend. Moto3 around Assen is usually an absolute hoot. Um, so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see how that goes. That's likely to go into the final game. Moto2, again, looks wide open as we speak at the moment. Um, Pekka Vanyaya, the championship leader, was quickest today. Um, although it was very, very close behind him. Uh, Catalonia winner Fabio Quartararo right on the pace again, um, which is encouraging. So he looks like he's proving that it wasn't just a one-off. one, one off. He's no one-trick pony. He's up the front again. Um, Oliveira doesn't usually hit his straps until Sunday afternoon, does he? Um, so mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't read too much into him being slightly down the order in free practice today. And as I mentioned, MotoGP, Maverick Vinales was quickest today. Yamaha looking quite good. Um, Mark Marquez just on the fringes of the top 10, but he was focusing entirely on race preparation. It mm-hmm. does look like a very wide open MotoGP race with this perhaps being a circuit that will bring the Yamahas into play. And with high temperatures, Honda may well struggle to make the tyres last. We shall see what happens. Whatever does happen, we will return next week for episode 67 um, of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. Looking back on the Dutch Grand Prix, the TT and Assen. Um, next weekend as MotoGP heads into its crucial summer phase with uh, the Saxon ring following very, very soon afterwards. As all costs, we have Austria and Bruno to come as well um, as we go into August. Um, places you can find us, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore uh, 101. Uh, on YouTube, it's youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.net. And if you want to earn yourself early access to both our weekly shows, back us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mudspot 101. $5 backing earns you early access to both podcasts each week. $10 backing earns you access to our Discord server and the ability to listen to these podcasts live as they are recorded. Uh, episode 148 of Mudspot 101 follows next week. Um, it's a little difficult at this stage for me to uh, hand over to Dre to tell us what's coming up because uh, Dre, you're not going to be on it. Um, but essentially, it's going to be a review of uh, what? A likely a silver wash at the Red Bull Ring? <sighs> yeah, probably. Um, sadly, I will not be on next week's show because uh, due to work commitments, uh, work schedule and date night, unfortunately, which means I actually have a weekend off for the first time in about four months um, next week, which is no, a walking miracle. Going to York. <laughs> you fucker. <laughs> you close to home this time. Yeah, thank God. Um, I'm actually staying in London this time. Go me. Um, but yes, um, as, a, you know, as a result of that, my, my hours have been fronted to the front of the week. So sadly, I will not be on next week's podcast, barring a miracle, unlikely. Um, so yeah, sadly, I won't be on next week's show. I'm, I'm, uh, someone will replace me. It could easily, I think it's looking like it's probably going to be Hazel. Um, Hazel Southwell, who does brilliant work with Formula E and is just generally a brilliant journo in general. So I'm sure you'll be in perfectly good hands without me. Oh, I'd love to know what she thinks of F2 having rolling starts this weekend. Oh, that sounds like fun. Um, but uh, yeah, that 
that and most likely a full review of the Austrian Grand Prix, which is looking like it's going to be a one-two for Mercedes. Um, Sebastian, if you can, you know, just just fuck it up in a little bit in there, would you? Maybe a second. I'll take second. I'll take second. Okay. Yeah, not, I, look, not, not the same way he fucked shit up at the Castellet last weekend. No, no, and, and keep keep it clean. You know that, that that'd be nice too. Keep keep it clean. We, we like clean. There's free DRS and you ain't got an excuse this time around. Okay. Um, okay, so yeah, all of that, the Austrian Grand Prix, and the big news about Formula 2 going to rolling start. So shout out to RJ O'Connell for calling that one, by the way. Well played, sir, um, I, I, I have to say. And yes, as, as King mentioned as he's listening to this live right now, Porsche, the 919 Evo, absolutely obliterates the Nordschleife for all-time lap record in one of the most incredible motorsporting laps I have ever seen. Um Five minutes and 19 seconds for a lap of the Nordschleife. An average speed of 146 miles an hour. Yeah, go and watch it on YouTube. It is breathtaking to watch. And yeah. Shout out to whoever said it on, on Twitter. I can't remember who it was, so apologies if I've, if I've not got your name. But they said it's basically when you watch it, it looks like it's fast forward. It looks like it's been sped yeah. up, but it's actually in yeah. real time. Yeah, yeah, 230 miles an hour on the back straight. And that was about a quarter of the way down the massive back straight of the Nordschleife. I mentioned 146 miles an hour average speed. It, Timo Bernhardt is my new hero. What an unbelievable... Take, take a fucking bow, sir. That was utterly magnificent driving. Um, so all of that. Um, so yeah, Austrian Grand Prix, lack of me, and gushing over Porsche. Next week, episode 141 on Motorsport 101. Be there. Yeah, the fastest thing in Germany since their football team touched down. Uh, anyway, hey! um, moving on. That's all from this week, episode 66. Uh, we're here all week. Uh, hopefully by the time episode 67 rolls around, England aren't out of it, and then you can all laugh at me. Um, but yeah. join, join me, Andre, next week to look back on the Dutch TT and Assen, the latest round of the MotoGP World Championship. Um, thanks to you all for listening to this week's edition of Bike Live. We will see you again in a week's time. Bye for now.